0: That was a great song. It was perfect for tonight, Emily. (laughs) Welcome, everyone. Good to see you all. Happy birthday. Young man in the back, I see you. 31, is it 31 today? 41, something (laughs) like that. All right, we're in the book of Esther. Chapter 2 tonight, we're going to do chapter 2 and chapter 3. So, I'm getting a little bit of an echo, I don't know if that's... Okay, I'll ignore it, sorry about that. Um So uh, Pastor Jonathan opened us up in chapter 1. What I wanted to do is kind of, as we get into chapter 2 here, um, just a reminder of a couple of things. One is that uh, Pastor Jonathan mentioned this last week, that God's name is not mentioned in the book of Esther. Um, Neither is prayer. It's kind of interesting. Um, But obviously, the whole book is about God and his providence as, as he oversees these events. And in uh, chapter 1, and I'm going to just point out kind of from a timeline perspective, um, we, we learned at the beginning of chapter 1 that the opening scene was in the third year of the reign of Xerxes, or what uh, the book of Esther, um, the, the Hebrew name is um, Ahasuerus. And it, was, it started out in the third year of his reign. When we get into chapter 2, and just to kind of look ahead here, the narrative we're going to be talking about is in the uh, seventh year. So chapter 2, verse 16, it says, So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is uh, the month of Tabith in the seventh year of his reign. And so uh, you could do the math there—the beginning of chapter one to where we are in chapter two—it's about a four-year gap. Uh, the beginning of chapter two covers about a one-year gap, so you can imagine between one and two is about a three-year period, um, which is kind of important. And if you remember as well, they they had a 180-day party uh, amongst all the providences. And uh, Pastor Jonathan mentioned this, that it was more than likely to rally support uh, for the war against the European continent, ultimately against the Greeks, uh, to go and uh, attempt to conquer the Greeks. Um, Once we get to chapter 2, many people believe or historians believe that is the gap where they went out to war... Uh, to battle the Greeks, and they returned, they were rejected, okay? They, uh, they, they did not um, achieve their objective, uh, they did not conquer the European continent, and so they return here at the beginning of chapter 2. And so we'll pick up uh, chapter 2, verse 1. After these things, and of course after the things we read in chapter 1, and more than likely the, the failed uh, military conquest. When the wrath of King Ahasuerus subsided, he remembered Vashti, what she had done, and what had been decreed against her. And um, as you can imagine, you return from war, and um, what would be better than the comfort of your wife? But unfortunately, um, he had decreed against her and uh, deposed of her, so got rid of her, um, based on... A couple of things. I think uh, one thing to point out is that um, Ahasuerus did make a decree. Uh, according to the, lo- the law of the Medes and the Persians, this decrees cannot be changed. Uh, we learn about this in Daniel, Daniel chapter 6, verse 8. And in Daniel chapter 6, it's the famous Daniel in the lion's den. Everybody knows that account of Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel is um, here... Uh, the, the king Darius at the time in Daniel chapter 6, verse 8, it says, Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. So even the king himself cannot alter the decree. Um, that was the way the law of the Medes and the Persians went. So that whatever the king said, the decree that was made, he couldn't change his mind and change the decree and change it to something else. So we, hear, we see here in Esther that um, he's probably has some regret of this decree he made, especially after returning home from war. And uh, I just wanted to kind of bring this up as we're looking at kind of what happened in chapter 1 and now the regret that he feels about this decree, that this was all brought about really in this, uh, this party they were having, this 180-day party um i've heard this said and it's it's kind of a funny saying but um as the alcohol goes in wisdom goes out it's like a direct relationship so you go alcohol in wisdom out right and so um the, i've heard this said and there's what i looked at was three bad choices that that led to this regret that we see here first of all um he decided in his Drunkenness decided to parade Vashti around, or wanted to parade Vashti around his queen in front of the guys, in front of the drunk guys, to display her beauty, right? And she rejected him. And as Pastor Jonathan said, probably rightly so, (laughs) she rejected him. And so that was mistake number one. Number two, he took um, advice from his drinking buddies (laughs) on what to do, (laughs) right? Uh, all of his guys that were drinking with him, he decided to get wisdom from them, which, again, not very good when they're full of alcohol. And um, number three, he obviously signed the decree that disposed of her, or got rid of her. And so three bad choices. Now, Ephesians uh, chapter 5, verse 18 says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is a debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And if this is kind of that same contrast of wisdom and alcohol, but more probably more direct as it relates to the Spirit, is that if we pursue drunkenness, you cannot also pursue God, right? There's this direct relationship. The two cannot coexist. It's one or the other. Um, if the substance controls us, then the Spirit can't control us, right? And so um, as followers of Christ, we should seek to be sober-minded and abstain from practices that would lead us into sin uh, like we saw um, last week. Um, All right, so we'll pick up here. So now he's uh, full of regret, and uh, he's going to get some more advice here. So verse 2, Then the king's servants who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the providences of his kingdom that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan, the citadel, into the woman's quarters under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, custodian of the women, and and let beauty preparations be given to them. Then let the young women who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This thing pleased the king, and he did so. So you can look at this as um, kind of a beauty contest that's going to take place, Miss Miss Universe or Miss Persia. um, And they're going to have a competition to see who uh, will be the next uh, queen. Uh, Verse 5, we read, In Shushan, the citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been captured with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. All right. So we get introduced to, first to Mordecai. Um, just so you guys know, I, I kind of found this interesting as I was looking at this, is that Mordecai, the name is derived uh, from a Babylonian. It's a Babylonian name, and it means a follower of Marduk who was a prominent god uh, of the Babylonians, and he was the god of justice, fairness, and order. Um, I think that's interesting, and it kind of follows the same pattern that we saw in Daniel, right, when Daniel was carried away. Obviously, Daniel being his Jewish or Hebrew name, and, um, and then he was given the name Belteshazzar by the Babylonians. Um, and you know Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego were all Babylonian names, um, and so here we have Mordecai. We don't. We're never given what his Hebrew name is, but I kind of suspect he probably had one, uh, but we don't know what that is. And so this is a, um, a uh, obviously a Babylonian influenced name, and then we're also given the insight that he is from the descendant of uh, Benjamin, so from the tribe of Benjamin, and of course. Uh, Judah, or the territory of Judah, as Pastor Jonathan explained last week, consisted of the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. And so uh, Mordecai being of the tribe of Benjamin. Um, we're going to, in chapter three, we're going to get introduced into Haman. Um, and there's an interesting kind of correlation. I haven't totally, um, you know, come to a, like a spiritual conclusion on it, but Haman is a descendant from Agag. Um, Saul was also a Benjamite, King Saul, right? And so we have this interesting, you know, correlation of Agag um, and Amalekite. I'll, I'll talk about that in chapter 3. But, um, but anyways, Mordecai is here and introduced to us. So then we go to uh, verse 7. And Mordecai had brought up Hadasha, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother, the young woman was lovely and beautiful. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So Mordecai being a cousin, obviously an older cousin to Hadasha or Esther, as we know her of. Um, Hadasha being the Hebrew name. Um, Hadassah means myrtle. So like, think of, a, you know, we get the crepe myrtles around here that uh, are going to start blooming here soon. And so that's what the name Hadassah means. Um, Esther is her Persian name. And so Esther is from the goddess of love, Ishtar. And so that's where Esther's name comes from. And so um, that's how she was known uh, by Esther, of course, from this point forward. Um, So let's let's go to verse 8. So it was when uh, the king's command and the decree were heard, and when many young women were gathered at Shushan, the citadel, under the custody of Haggai, that Esther also was taken to the king's palace into the care of Haggai, the custodian of the women. And um, just, I don't know, you know, how much truth this is to it, but uh, Josephus, and we are I was talking about this with Jonathan last week, Josephus, many, many years later, a historian, Jewish uh, historian commissioned by Rome, uh, reports that there was about 400 women that took part of this event. Um, So, you know, take for that what it will. He was closer to the event than we are, so maybe there's some accuracy, but there's a lot of women that took part of this particular event. And So uh, verse 9, now the young women pleased him. And now we're speaking about Esther, right, Uh, with Haggai, the, the custodian of the women. Now the young woman pleased him, and she obtained his favor. So he readily gave beauty preparations to her besides her allowance. Then seven choice maidservants were provided for her from the king's palace, and he moved her and her maidservants to the best place in the house of the women. Uh, verse 10 Esther had not revealed her people or family, for Mordecai had changed or had charged her not to reveal it. This is, I've, out of all the verses I went through to kind of prepare for this lesson, this particular verse was kind of struck me. I, I kind of struggle with it a little bit and I still do. Um, it's very much in contrast to what we see from like an Ezra or a Nehemiah or a Daniel who lived under Persian rule, right? And so Mordecai and Esther, um, Mordecai specifically had charged her not to reveal their heritage, their Jewish heritage. And um, and you guys remember Daniel, the, the account that I read out of Daniel in the lion's den, right? The reason why he got thrown in the lion's den was because, um, you know, they, it was a setup by his peers to uh, because they were... Uh, You know, they didn't like him worshiping his God, right? And the account is that um, for 30 days, there was a ruling, again, the, the ruling or the decree that cannot be overturned, that only the king could be worshiped, right? Only the king could be sought to for wisdom and guidance. And the Bible says that Daniel, as was his custom, as what he always did, he didn't just start doing it out of rebellion. He just always did this, and he continued doing it. Three times a day, he went into his house, opened the window, and kneeled and prayed before the Lord, and he continued to do that. And um, so his faith and his beliefs were clearly shown, and you could say the same for like Nehemiah, right, and the same for Ezra, and these other people that lived under this same type of uh, environment that Mordecai and Esther did. Uh, but yet in verse 10, it seemed right for one reason or another that Mordecai would hide his heritage, right, his, his uh, Jewish roots. And he also charged Esther in this matter. Um, I don't really know from scripture whether this was the right way or the wrong way. Like whether he should have been more open with who he was and the God he believed in um, or, or not. I don't know right? Um, It could go either way. I tend to give him the benefit of the doubt that he was led by the Lord in this, Um, but it probably goes more to the point that God's providence in this whole picture, regardless of what Mordecai did was right or wrong, God was going to protect the Jewish people, right? He was going to protect his people. And so we don't know for sure if he should have... you know, revealed who he was, revealed that he was a Jew or not. Um, I tend to, as we kind of apply this to our life, I tend to be, let's live more like Daniel, right, and just be genuine, right, with people, who we are, make our faith known quickly. Um, I was talking about this with my daughter, like when you start a new job, you know, so you don't get caught up in the wrong group, make your faith known quickly, right, Um, I I tend to lean that way, but we don't know for sure about Mordecai. Um, All right, so let's continue on, verse 11. And every day Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. And we have to keep in mind that this tells me for sure that this is not necessarily a great situation that Esther was in. We think it might be, like a beauty pageant. But it's not really a great situation, uh, especially if there's really 400 women involved. I mean, it's, now you're looking at a 1 in 400 chance of being queen or a 399 chance out of 400 of being rejected, right? And just basically being a, you know, living in the quarter of the concubines for the rest of your life, right? Because um, it's not like those other 399 women got to be just released and go get married somewhere, right? So uh, this is not a great position for her to be in, and obviously Mordecai was worried about her, and that's why he went by to check up, check up on her daily. Um, verse 12, each young woman's turn came to go into King Ahasuerus after she had completed 12 months preparation according to the regulations for the women. For thus were the days of the preparation approximately Six, uh, portioned six months with oil of myrrh and six months with perfumes and preparations for beautifying, the, beautifying women. Thus prepared, each young woman went to the king and she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the women's quarters to the king's palace. And so um, there's, <laughs> I thought it was interesting because, you know, Guys, we complain about women taking a long time to get ready, but this was a 12-month uh, window to get ready for their date with uh, the king. And so there's a, quite a bit of preparation that went into this, but I read one commentary that actually made a little sense to me was that um, they wanted to make sure they didn't enter pregnant. So there, by, by 12 months, you can pretty much guarantee that they didn't show up pregnant, right? <laughs> and so um, this 12-month waiting period was, um, you know, the verify that they didn't enter pregnant, Um, but also to obviously, uh, sounds like a, you know, a spa, I guess, uh, where they can prepare for this uh, particular date night with the king. Uh, Verse 14, in the evening she went, and in the morning she returned to the second house of the women, to the custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who kept the concubines. She would not go into to into the king again, unless the king delighted in her and called for her by name. Now, when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter to go into the king, she requested nothing but what Haggai, the king's eunuch, the custodian of the women, advised. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tabith, in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained favor, she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than the virgins, more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the King made a great feast, the Feast of Esther, for all his officials and servants, and he proclaimed a holiday in the province and gave gifts according to the generosity of the king and um, We could see kind of the first puzzle piece being set up by God here in this overall plan, uh, Esther being appointed as king, um, just so you guys know. Um, the gifts, more than likely, that were given out were either a remittance of taxes or a waiver of taxes or uh, grace being given to criminals. Um, similar to kind of what happened with Jesus, right? With um, uh, a criminal being released uh, as a favor to the people. So um, Psalm 75, 6 through 7 says, For Exaltation comes neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south, but God is the judge, He puts down one and exalts the other. And of course, Esther being exalted to the position of queen, um, we see here in the seventh year of uh, King Ahasuerus, um, is going to play an important part many years in the future, actually. And you can see God playing ahead, planning ahead here, and putting Esther into this position. Verse 19. When the virgins were gathered together a second time, Mordecai sat within the king's gate. Now Esther had not revealed her family and her people, just as Mordecai had charged her. For Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai as when she was brought up by him. Now a couple of, here we see it again, where Esther is going to there, continue to hide her Jewish identity. Um, one thing I saw kind of interesting here is verse 19 that Mordecai sat within the king's gate. And this would have been a position of some sort of prominence given to Mordecai. And there's a couple of ideas about this. Either he was given a position of prominence because his relation to Esther, now the queen, which would make sense. Um, Or he already had a position of prominence, and that's why they knew of Esther. Who became queen, right? Um, one or the other. I tend to believe the second because he had access to the women's quarters. In the last chapter we saw where he could, every day he would go by the women's quarters, which seems unlikely unless he already had a somewhat of a position of prominence. Um, but it could, be, it could be either one, but we see him now in this position. Um, verse 21, in those days while Mordecai sat within the king's gates, Two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthan and Terith, doorkeepers, became furious and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. And when an inquiry was made into the matter, they did an investigation, it was confirmed, and both were hanged on the gallows. And it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king." Now, we see here um, Mordecai, obviously, hears of this plot, and he tells Esther. Esther tells the king. At this point in time, though, and many of you have read Esther, um, nothing is given to Mordecai. Uh, There's no um, gifts rained on him, no special uh, appointment given to him. Um, It just says that the, the plot was unfolded. It was found out. And uh, the, the two men who were plotting were hung on the gallows. Um, it's kind of interesting. This is in year seven, uh, in year 20, which Esther doesn't go that far. But uh, Xerxes reigned for 20 years, and he was eventually assassinated by his prime minister. <laughs> and so it ended up being somebody close to him that, that ended up uh, doing him in anyways. Uh, but it was many years later. Um, So uh, we're going to go into chapter 3 now, and we see this, you know, just like as we started off chapter 2 and chapter 3, we see after these things, and we have a very similar kind of gap here. And so if you can, just look in your Bibles up ahead to verse 7. It says, in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the 12th year of King Ahasuerus. So we're going to get some narrative here. But chapter 3 starts out, this is in the 12th year now, and so we jumped from the 3rd to the 7th, now to the 12th, so we got another five years. So Esther's queen, apparently Mordecai is still in a position in the gates, Um, uh, but now we get introduced to Haman, right? So verse 1 of chapter 3, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha. the Agite, Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. And so Haman, um, like I had mentioned, if you guys remember the story, he was, he was from the descendants of Agag. Agag was a king of the Amalekites when Saul was king over Israel, Saul a Benjamite, right? So we see the, the, somewhat of a connection here, um, Saul, if you remember, he was commanded by God to destroy the Amalekites, to com- utterly destroy them, all of them. And uh, the, the account we read in 1 Samuel, we went through that, was that Samuel himself walked in and the King Agag was still alive right after the Amalekites had been conquered, as well as many other people, obviously, because we have Haman <laughs> here, you know, in this story. And he was there, and and Samuel ended up having to take care of business for him and ended up uh, taking him down by the sword. Um, But it makes you wonder if there was some dissension between these two men already because of the history, right? Uh, Where, you know, the descendant from Agag and the descendant from Benjamin um, and, you know, with King Saul being in that lineage as well. And so verse 2 And all the king's servants who were within the king's gates bowed and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were within the king's gates said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And um, we see here this It's an interesting question, and, you know, I kind of contemplated this as well. There's a difference between, obviously, we are not supposed to worship any other God or any other person as God. And so if that was the request being made to Mordecai, obviously, he shouldn't have done it, right? But there's many examples in Scripture where people pay homage or respect or bow. Abraham did it multiple times to people. Um, you guys remember the story with Joseph and his brothers, right? Joseph was in a position of political leadership in Egypt, and his brothers bowed before him, and it was actually ordained by God because he dreamed about it before. Um, so paying honor and respect to a political leader is, doesn't seem to be uh, condemned by God at all. And um, so what was going on here exactly? I don't, I don't know. It, I don't know for sure, right? Um, either it was Mordecai understanding Haman's character and who he was, and did not want to respect him. It was a, more of a personal thing, or it was more of the command of worship, which he would have had the obligation not to not to um, not to worship him. Obviously, bow in that matter. So we don't know for sure. And this is what's kind of interesting about this account is that you know. A lot of times when we read this, we think about Mordecai and Esther being the main characters, the main ones that were, you know, um, ultimately saving the Jewish people. But that's not really the case. It's God, right? God's moving all these pieces around. And even if uh, Mordecai is operating in weakness, um, God is still in control. He's still provident, right? And all of this stuff going on. Uh, So, verse uh, 4. Now it happened when when they spoke to him daily, and he would not listen to them, that they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. And so, this is the first time that we see in the account that it's revealed that Mordecai is indeed a Jew. Jew. And um, so up until this point, I don't think Haman had an issue with Mordecai, right? It never says that until after this point, then it becomes an issue, right? That's why I tend to think that there was some issue Haman had more with the Jews than with Mordecai. And um, so we're going to continue on here. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay homage, Haman was filled with wrath, but he disdained to, he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. So he, he was revealed that he was a Jew indeed. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. Now, I think Pastor Jonathan said last week that it could have been, what, a couple million people we're talking about? So it's a lot, of, it's not just a handful of people here, right? This is a, uh, a large number of people that historians believe were a part of the uh, Persian Empire that were Jewish. Um, verse 7, in uh, the people of Mordecai, yep, verse 7, in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the 12th. Year of King Ahasuerus, they cast per that is the lot before Haman to determine the day and the month until it fell on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. So, what's going on here? Obviously, Haman's um, desire is to wipe out and kill all the Jews. He's going to cast a lot, which is you know like throwing dice, so to speak, to determine which month this is going to take place. Now, he hasn't proposed it to the king yet. That's coming up. But this is kind of an interesting um, event where he casts casts the lot. Um, We get the Jewish holiday Purim from it, right? And I think that was just a couple of days ago or a day or two ago. And um, so this is what takes place. And what's interesting is that it fell on the 12th month. So this was in the first first month, and it fell on the 12th month, um, which in Proverbs says, uh, Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. The uh, Jews now would give, the story would be able to basically have 11 months to pass, right? It could have been the second month. It could have been the fourth month, but it ended up being the 12th month, giving an eleventh month gap here before this, uh, before ultimately the decree that King Ahasuerus would give would go out. Um, verse 8. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, here's the the charge. There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the providence of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other peoples, and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed, and I will pay ten thousand talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasures. And I think, although I don't think King Ahasuerus was a very um, good man in general, <laughs> you know, just from historical accounts, um, I think he's being tricked here because I don't. I don't think he was connected enough with his people to realize how big of an impact this would have been. Um, you know, at this point, I don't even know, you know, he may have think, oh, this is, uh, you know, some revolutionaries, maybe 10 or 15 people that are causing problems, and so let's go ahead and just take care of it and be done with it, right? Um, that's, that's the way I take it. And what Haman tells is kind of a partial truth. Of course, the Jews had their own law, but it, nothing prevented them from falling under the, under the Persian law, Right? And many Jews lived under the Persian law, like Daniel we spoke about, right, or Nehemiah. And they did fine under the Persian law. They rose to positions of prominence under the Persian law. So there was nothing preventing them from from living within the Persian law as long as it didn't contradict God's law, which it didn't, right, in general, except for the, you know, the issue with uh, Daniel that we talked about. But in general, it didn't. And um, so he's telling kind of a partial truth. Uh, to try to uh, convince the king here. Uh, verse 10, we read. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Amadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money and the people are given to you to do with them as, you, as seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were called on the thirteenth day of the first month, and a decree was written according to all that Haman commanded. To the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, to the officials of all the people, to every providence, our province according to the script, and to every people in every language, in the name of King Ahasuerus, it was written and sealed with the king's signet ring. And the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. A copy of the document was to be issued as law in every province, being published for all people, that they should be ready for that day. The couriers went out hastened by the king's command, and the decree was proclaimed in Shushan, the citadel. So the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Shushan was perplexed. And that's where we're going to finish tonight. I wanted to. Um, well one thing before i kind of give my closing comments where it says the city of shushan was perplexed i like the i like the way it says that i was we were watching this movie called um book thief that was it book thief okay so it was set in uh, uh germany during world war 2 uh kind of a well, no it wasn't germany it was the nearby one of the conquered countries. Countries, I forget. Anyways, it was set in that Europe, we'll say, <laughs> in uh, World War II, and um, it was like in a little town, and uh, it was showing kind of the effects that Germany was having as it went through the war. And one of the scenes, which was very traumatic, was a a Jew that was being taken away, and he kind of hidden his identity for a while. Nobody really knew it, and when he was taken away, everybody in town was like, "What is going on this is This is our friend. this is who we do business with. This is the family we hang out with." And people were freaking out because they they were like, "We don't care who he is, like, he's our friend right And so here you see the 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 city of Shushan, it wasn't just the Jews. the whole city was perplexed uh, because these are the you know their friends and people they hang out with, and the kids their kids play soccer with or whatever right they did back in Persia. <laughs> um but it just shows you how widespread the edict was it wasn't just uh you know a small group of people that were affected it was a big a big deal to say that they were very perplexed and it also shows you how the king was um really kind of separated right being the elite separated from his people and not understanding this um just as a closing comment this kind of reminds me of acts I Acts uh, chapter 4, verses 27 through 28. And this, obviously, speaking of the, the account of uh, Jesus, but it says, For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. And so all these people that Satan probably thought we're defeating God's plans, right? All these people came out against Jesus. And then it finishes the verse that God had purposed and determined before to be done. And so that's, you know, ultimately what I think we're seeing here with Haman. I got to think that kind of behind the scenes, Satan's thinking, I got him. I'm going to annihilate the Jews, and I got my chess piece right where I want it. But yet, five years late earlier, God already put Esther and Mordecai in place before Haman was even brought up. You know, so you could see God working through this and His hand behind the, the events that are going on here. Pretty cool. So, uh, Pastor Jonathan will be up next week to share with us and continue on in Esther. Uh, Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you again for your word. Thank you for teaching us through your word. I ask that uh, we just keep in mind that that you are in control of the big picture, Uh, just like the song Emily and Hannah sung tonight, Lord, about, uh, just pray we don't get overwhelmed, that you are provident, you see the big picture, the place where you have us now, what you, know, you have bigger purpose. Maybe it's 10 years from now. Maybe it's two weeks from now. But you have a purpose for where we are and uh, the time we live and what we're doing, Lord. And so I just pray that we uh, trust in you. We have faith in you, Lord. And we just love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.